Amen. You can take a seat. Well, good morning. My name is Christian, as Cole said. I'm one of the pastors and elders here. Um, And my opportunity this morning, my privilege this morning, is to continue our series through 1 Peter. I'm wrapping up kind of a three-week mini-series within this book, focusing on this idea that Peter shows us of what it means to walk in Jesus' footsteps, to conduct ourselves honorably in the world around us, to commit ourselves to do good even when we are misunderstood, a willingness, as our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan are experiencing, a willingness to suffer without retaliating by entrusting ourselves to God who judges justly. Peter says this is what it means to embrace our exile. This is what it means to be God's servants in this world. This is a heavy calling. But as I said last week, this is the way. I mentioned last week that this this lifestyle of following the example of Jesus, not everyone can see the beauty, the power, the, the victory of it. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians, to many people it smells like death. It just looks like defeat and dishonor and death. But to those who have eyes to see, who God gives eyes to see, following in the footsteps of Jesus, as hard as it may be, truly is the path to life, to victory, to transformation. I told you that's what we'd come back to this week. How is walking this way of life victorious? I want to show it to you in three ways this morning. There's kind of three main points. I would say this is one of those mornings if you take notes on your phone or in a journal, please do. There's a lot on my heart. I don't know how we'll get to all of it or if we will. But my hope is just to kind of skip across the rock, a rock across the surface of the water and give you a big picture for how this example of Jesus is victorious. And again, three ways. Number one, when we walk in the example of Jesus, this is how we confront evil in the world. Number two, this is how we testify to the victory of Jesus in the world. And third, this is also how we testify to the reality of God's judgment, which is coming to this world. Again, every one of those points could be a standalone sermon. Heck, it could be a series of sermons. So we're just going to skip a rock across the surface, and my hope is that this gives us hopefully a a big three-dimensional picture of both what God has called us to do in this world, our responsibility to confront evil, and especially of Jesus' role to defeat evil. Keep that in mind. We confront it, but Jesus is the one who gains the victory. Does that make sense? Here's where I want to start. Look back where we started a couple weeks ago. Chapter 2, verse 13. 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 13. Here's where Peter goes. Remember, he says, our goal is to act honorably in this world. What does it mean to act honorably? And where does he go first? Be subject to the human institutions, the governing authorities that God's put over us. That's the first step in what it means to act honorably in this world. But the point I want you to focus on is what he says there at the end of verse 14 about the role of these human authorities. According to verse 14, what is the main role that we should expect human rulers to play? What's that? Punish those who do evil. That's part of it. What's the other part of it? Commend or praise those who do good. That's the role of human leaders, government authorities. To punish evil and to praise good. 
positive and negative reinforcement. Paul says pretty much the same thing in Romans chapter 13. I bring that up not to start a debate about what roles of the government are legitimate or illegitimate or anything like that. Y'all can fight about that on your own. My purpose to you, though, is to say, according to the New Testament, as we as followers of Jesus look to the governing authorities over us, these are the two things we look to them to do. But the reality is, because human institutions are run by humans who are flawed and limited and sinful just like us, oftentimes these human rulers get it backwards. Rather than punishing evil and rewarding good, they reward evil and punish good. And that is a huge problem, right? I mean, think about it in the life of Jesus. Think about the role that Pilate, the Roman procurator, played in the life of Jesus. Knew, knew Jesus was sinless. Knew he had done nothing deserving of death. And yet he used his power to authorize Jesus' execution to appease the mob. That is a misuse of justice. And when human authorities get that backwards, we do have a role to play in communicating. Let's say, this is what God has put you in your positions to do. Can we show you how you've got it backward? Can we appeal to you? And I am grateful to live in a society where at least to this point, our governing authorities have protected our right to speak truth to power in those ways. But again, as we saw a couple weeks ago, even as we speak honestly with our rulers, we do so honorably, as he says in verse 17, giving honor to everyone. The point I want to make from these two verses, though, as you keep going, if the role of government is to praise good and punish evil, whose role, whose responsibility is it to do good? Is it the government's responsibility? Look at the very next verse. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Whose responsibility is it to do good in this world? Who's you? Us, followers of Jesus, those born again as God's children, in the same way that God appoints human rulers to punish evil and reward good, and ultimately he will hold them responsible and accountable for how they carry that out. In the same way, God has appointed us, his, his kingdom of priests, his holy nation, to do good in this world, and he will hold us accountable for how we do that too. It is our calling to do good in this world, not just to voice our opinions on what we think is good. Not just to cheer on others as they do good and say, man, I could never do what you do, but I'm so glad you do it. Not even just to vote for people that we hope will do good. We should vote for people that hopefully will, we think will use that position to do good. But remember, human institutions are not ultimately responsible to do good. That's our job. The calling of God on our lives is for you and I to get our hands dirty, to do actual good to actual people in the name of Jesus and in direct response to the hurt and the suffering and the evil we see around us. This is the example that Jesus has set for us. Think about this in the life of Jesus. How did he confront evil by doing good in his day? Did you know that Jesus' day, first century Roman Empire, was as fraught with racial tension, ethnic discord, as our day? 
On the one hand, you've got the Jewish people who feel that they're better than everyone else because they're God's chosen people. On the other hand, you have the Romans who think that they're better than everyone else because they've beaten everyone else. And in between that, you have all kinds of groups who are either trying to find a way to fit in and get in good with the people in power or, or, or protect this isolated identity, this oppressed identity, and think we are this group that's been treated bad and we just need to hunker down and wait because one day we'll get our day. And how did Jesus come into that tense, ethnic, even racist society? He did good, cared for, healed, fed, welcomed all kinds of people. Jews, Gentiles, prostitutes, tax collectors, Roman military officers, Samaritans. He did good across the board and welcomed people. And here's the thing. He didn't just say, I'm for your group, or I'm for your group, or I'm for your group. He said, come follow me. Come be a part of what I'm doing. Whatever tensions and divisions and injustices that have been done, come find a new identity in me and in my kingdom that can overcome those old divisions. The way that Paul puts it in Ephesians 2, Jesus came to make a new human family, as it were, in himself, overcoming those old divisions. We saw last week the way that, that Jesus confronted the abuse of power that was going on in his world by modeling this idea of servant leadership. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. I was talking with my wife last week, and she was so impressed by the way that Jesus confronted the religious hypocrisy of his day by simply practicing what he preached. Isn't that refreshing? I was talking to Jen uh, this week, and she was just saying, man, that hard road that Jesus has called us to walk with him of sacrificial service for those around us, it's so hard. And yet I love the fact that Jesus has not called us to do anything that he hasn't already done for us. I can trust him because he does the very things he calls me to do. I can follow his example. What I want to do over these next couple of minutes is just share a few stories before we move on of how throughout our history, our family, God's people, have embraced this call to follow the example of Jesus, to confront evil in our world by doing good in Jesus' name. Now, granted, as you look through church history, there's a lot of terrible examples of what this looks like. There are a lot of people who have done atrocious things in the name of Jesus. But I would say here's the distinction. When people in, our, in, in the past have not just claimed the name of Jesus, but actually been willing to follow the example of Jesus, we have confronted evil in some really remarkable ways. Think about this one. In the early first century, while, while the church was still just a small, persecuted minority within the Roman Empire, they were able to confront what was a very commonplace evil of their day, what we would call infanticide. The common practice of discarding of unwanted babies on the side of the road outside the city to die by exposure. This was an atrocious practice. But what I want you to see is the way that our ancestors in the faith, they didn't just yell for the government to do something about it. They saw those babies lying there on the side of the road and they said, we'll take them. 
We'll take them home, we'll clean them up, we'll feed them, we'll care for them, we'll raise them, we'll even adopt them into our families because we're so good and we like doing good things. No, because we look at that baby through the eyes of Scripture and we say, that's the image of God wallowing on the side of the road. I want to care for that child. I want to protect that child. Even if it's so commonplace that no one bats an eye to see that, I see the image of God and I will care for that infant. They didn't need political power to do that. What they needed was to follow the example of Jesus. They didn't just see it as a political issue that needed laws or enforcement. They looked at these little babies and they saw the image of God and they said, we will serve. Now, I love the way that I see many within this church, many within our community, use these same methods to confront the infanticide of our day. See, the thing is that the Roman Empire didn't have the technology to murder a baby in the womb. So they would just wait till it was born and leave it out. In our more technologically advanced society, the way that we combat the same evil is by going to young mothers or old mothers or whoever they may be going, I don't know if I want to keep this pregnancy and helping them to see that is the image of God. Your baby is precious. He is fearfully, she is fearfully and wonderfully made. Counseling, caring for, providing for, pleading with families to keep their children, or if not, to bring them to birth so that we can find homes for them, right? I would say this to you. I love how many of you in our church have jumped into foster care and adoption because you know that it's only one, it's one thing to say that we protect the sanctity of life in the womb, but it's another thing to actually care for those lives outside the womb. To provide families and homes and an identity for those in our society. I would say this to you, that there's so much more that we could say about that. But if you've been looking at abortion simply as an issue that shapes how you vote, it is time to engage. If you're looking for ways to do it, I would direct you to the, the Community Pregnancy Clinic right here in Simi Valley. Fantastic organization. You can find more information at cpccimi.org. Information about how to serve, how to get involved, and especially how to love families, women, men who are wrestling with these same questions. But my point is this. These first generations of the church, they did more than just sound the alarm about the evil going on in their day. They did good. They jumped in, and by the third century, even through intense persecution, Christians were able to turn the tide of Roman opinion about them by their willingness to suffer for doing good. By the third century, they went from being a persecuted minority to a respected majority to the official religion of the Roman Empire in the days of Constantine. Now, that brought a whole bunch of other problems. Once Christians got political power, we've had problems with it ever since. But again, my point is just to say, do you see the impact of being willing to sacrificially serve those around us? Let me give you a couple other examples. Have you ever looked into the history of the abolition movements, the abolition of slavery movements, both in this country and in the United Kingdom? It's a remarkable story. And I can only touch on a couple of the high points. But the commonality between the way that slavery was abolished in this country and the UK is that these movements started within the church. 
They started amongst men and women like you and I who looked at people through the eyes of Scripture, not just the way it had always been around them, and they said, why are we treating these African men and women and children like property when they're made in the image of God? This is wrong. Even though it's always been this way and we don't know anything different, we know it shouldn't be this way. The abolition movement in the United Kingdom was spearheaded by a group of people that were known as the Clapham sect. A sect, right? That brings weird religious cultic ideas in our mind, right? Because that's the way that people looked at them. These guys are wacko. They're out there. They have this audacious idea that all men and women are created in the image of God and worthy of dignity and protection. Right crazy. It's a collection of pastors and speakers and other men and women, even freed slaves, who they took it upon themselves to canvas the country and expose the realities of the harsh treatment of slaves in the slave trade. To communicate from Scripture this idea that all people are made in the image of God and worthy of dignity and respect. The most foremost person in the Clapham sect, the most prominent member, was a man by the name of William Wilberforce, who was a minister in Parliament and actually came to Jesus, came to faith in Christ, while he was already in politics. And he made it his life's goal from his position to work for the abolition of the slave trade. And so every year for 18 years, from 1789 until 1807, William Wilberforce would bring a bill before Parliament for the abolition of the slave trade. Early on, it was defeated by a landslide over and over and over again. But by the time in 1807 that it passed, it passed by an overwhelming majority. And even though that abolished the importation of slaves from Africa to the Caribbean and other parts of the empire, it was another 26 years until those who were already living in slavery were freed. In 1833, slavery itself, not just the trade, was abolished throughout the British Empire. And... Just a couple months later, William Wilberforce died. He gave his life to that effort. The, several years back, they made a great movie about it. It's called uh, Amazing Grace. I'd highly recommend it to you. But I share that story to you to illustrate the way that the abolition movement in the UK was spearheaded by, by Christians who worked hard for years to act honorably toward those who were enslaved, to expose the dishonor and evil of slavery, they worked within the political system to change laws, but they understood that it was even more important and effective to change minds. So they patiently persevered for decades to slowly turn the tide of public opinion, which made it possible to change laws. Does that make sense? Now compare that to the abolition movement in the United States. In the same way, as I said, it was spearheaded by Christians. The interesting part was that the strongest opponents to the abolition movement were also Christians in the South who sought to protect and hold on to this institution of slavery. There are many parts of that story to tell, and I'll be honest, I only know a few of them, and I want to learn more. But ultimately, think about this. How was slavery finally abolished in this country? through patient persistence in winning the argument in changing minds? No. It was finally accomplished through civil war and thousands of deaths by force, by war, by bloodshed. 
And I would say to you that that left so much room for bitterness and resentment and discrimination to fester and grow, and we still, still deal with the effects of it to this day. In the 1950s and 60s, within the lifetime of some of you here, the civil rights movement was kind of spearheaded in this country, again, to to deal with many of the same problems and evils that continued to fester even a century after the abolition of slavery in this country. And again, it began with the church. It began with Christians, men and women, black men and women, and some white men and women too, who sought to follow the example of Jesus. Honorable conduct sacrificial service, a willingness to suffer without retaliating, submissiveness to the government, and simply asking the government to uphold their own laws and grant African Americans the very rights that, they, that legally were theirs. This week I came across the excerpt of a sermon from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. that he gave in 1956. And I'm going to share it with you. It's a couple paragraphs long. But I would, I'm sharing it with you because I was... I was Impacted by how much it echoes everything we've seen in First Peter so far. And even the way that I would say he speaks prophetically to the ways that more modern social justice initiatives have rejected the sacrificial service example of Jesus in favor of the more common tools of violence and power and coercion and have therefore failed to accomplish much true justice. Take a listen to this. Here's what he says. Always be sure you struggle with Christian methods and Christian weapons. Never succumb to the temptation to become bitter. As you press on for justice, be sure to move with dignity and discipline, using only the weapons of love. Let no man pull you so low as to hate him. Always avoid violence. If you succumb to the temptation of using violence in your struggle, unborn generations will be the recipients of a long and desolate night of bitterness, and your chief legacy to the future will be an endless reign of meaningless chaos. He continues. In your struggle for justice, let your oppressor know that you're not attempting to defeat or humiliate him or even to pay him back for the injustices that he has heaped upon you. Let him know that you are merely seeking justice for him as well as yourself. Let him know that the festering sore of segregation debilitates the white man as well as the Negro. With this attitude, you will be able to keep your struggle on high Christian standards. One more for you. Honesty impels me to admit that such a stand... To admit to such a stand will require willingness to suffer and sacrifice. So don't despair if you are condemned and persecuted for righteousness' sake. Whenever you take a stand for truth and justice, you are liable to scorn. Often you will be called an impractical idealist or a dangerous radical. Sometimes it might mean going to jail. And listen to this. If such is the case, you must honorably grace the jail with your presence. Wow. It might even mean physical death, but if physical death is the price that some must pay to free their children from a permanent life of psychological death, then nothing could be more Christian. Powerful words, aren't they? 
But they were so much more than words. They were the words of a man who understood what it meant to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Who understood that this is the most powerful way to confront evil and injustice in our world. But let me ask you in our last few minutes together, why? Why is this the most powerful way to confront evil and injustice in our world? Yes, it's the example that Jesus has set for us. It's the way that he confronted injustice, but I would say to you, it's even more. It's not just the way that Jesus confronted evil. It's the way that Jesus was victorious over evil. It's how he won through an act of sacrificial love. Let me show you what I mean. This is incredible. Watch this. 1 Peter chapter 3. You're, maybe you were wondering when we go back to 1 Peter. It's now. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17. Again, he tells us, it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Amen. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Okay, where did we just go, Peter? I get the first part. The example of Jesus, him being the righteous one, suffering for us, bringing us to God, dying and being raised to life again. But how does Noah fit into all this? What is this prison and who are these spirits? This is, and it's kind of, I may be making a mistake for bringing this in this far into my message. This is notoriously one of the most difficult passages in the entire New Testament to interpret. Martin Luther in his commentary, not Martin Luther King Jr., but Martin Luther said, this is a very difficult passage and I don't know what it means. (laughs) There are at least 30 different interpretations of what's going on here. If you grew up in a church where maybe you you memorize the Apostles' Creed, you're you're familiar with one of them. That that phrase in the Apostles' Creed that talks about how Jesus descended into hell after his death kind of comes from trying to understand what Peter's doing here. What does this mean that Jesus went to proclaim to spirits in prison? Let me briefly unpack for you what I think is the most solid way to interpret this in light of the rest of Scripture. What Peter is talking about here is something that took place not between Jesus' death and resurrection, but after his resurrection, after his ascension, when he was already taken up into the cloud into the heavenly places. And he goes to proclaim not to the spirits of dead humans to maybe give them a second chance, which is another common interpretation. He goes to proclaim to spiritual beings Evil spiritual beings created by Jesus but rebelled against Jesus and somehow um, a part of leading humans astray in the days of Noah. I can't put it all together, but this is the best understanding. He goes to speak to these evil spirits in this spiritual prison with a proclamation not of repentance but of victory. He goes to these evil spirits who rebelled against him, made by him, and he says, I won. I won the victory. You did your worst to me, and I won. It's as though after Jesus' death and resurrection, purchasing our salvation, conquering Satan, sin, and death, 
Before Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father, it's like God takes him on a victory lap through the whole spiritual realm saying, I won, I did it, I conquered violence through an act of sacrificial love, I beat death through death by rising again, and now I am King of kings and Lord of lords. Right? I think that's what's going on here based upon what Peter says a couple verses later in verse 22. He says that this Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This idea that through this simple act of one man not retaliating but being willing to suffer because that one man was not just a man, he is God-man. That one act of sacrificial love and victory over death was the decisive victory over evil, both in the spiritual realm and the physical realm. That's who this Jesus is. That's why when we follow in his example, though it looks like death to some, it truly is the path to life, to victory. This idea that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, conquered the forces of evil and now sits enthroned, we see it throughout the New Testament. Ephesians 1, Colossians 1 and 2, Philippians chapter 2, Hebrews 1 and 2. Again, if you're taking notes, jot those down. It's amazing to see. This is one that we, as Christians in America, often in the evangelical circles, We definitely emphasize what Jesus did to pay for our sins so that we might be forgiven. We need to focus in on the victory of Jesus that he accomplished. It's incredible. Here's why it's so important. Look at what Jesus himself said in John chapter 12 before his crucifixion. He knows he's heading to the cross and he knows 100% what he will accomplish through that cross. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world, Satan, be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he would die. Through my crucifixion, my resurrection, the exaltation that will come after it, I will defeat Satan. I will draw all people to myself and I will judge the world. This idea of judgment, again, comes up throughout the New Testament. If you've been paying attention in 1 Peter, it comes up throughout 1 Peter as well. In chapter 1, Peter talks about God, our Father, who will judge all people impartially based upon what they've done. In chapter 2, he talks about how Jesus was willing to endure unjust suffering because he entrusted himself to God who judges justly. In chapter four, he talks about those who persecute Christians. Don't worry, they will give an account before him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And then later on in chapter four, he says this. He says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the house of God. What does that mean? He says, when Christians suffer for doing good, for walking in the example of Jesus, it's time for judgment. It is evidence of God's judgment. This does not mean that when Christians suffer for doing good that they are being punished. This is not judgment in the sense of God's punishment. This is judgment in the sense of God distinguishing those who are his from those who are still under the power of the evil one. 
He says, when you're willing to walk in the example of Jesus, you demonstrate through your life that you are and forever will be on God's side of history. So can endure. Don't think that something strange is happening to you. You're actually giving evidence to the fact that God will judge and distinguish those who are his from those who are not. And it's already playing out in your life. So keep going. Not only that, he says, when you live this way, you display, I think, God's judgment to the world. That by the harsh treatment that Christians receive from those who reject and fight against them, we testify to the fact that they will stand before God one day based upon what, how they treat our brothers and sisters. So not only should this idea of Jesus' judgment inspire us to endure, it should also motivate us to compassion even for those who are persecuting us. Think of the example of Jesus. What did he say as the soldiers nailed his hands and feet to the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But this will stand against them one day. Their eyes are blind to the errors of their ways. And unless God opens their eyes, all of the mistreatment that our brothers and sisters around the world that we may suffer will stand against our accusers on the day of judgment. All the more reason to embrace, even in the midst of struggle and suffering, our call to be God's ambassadors, to be those who come and say, you will stand before this Jesus one day. Don't wait to come before him as judge. Come to him today as savior, as king, as your example for life. Why, again, the central question today why is following in the footsteps of Jesus the most powerful way to confront evil in this world? Because this is how Jesus won the victory over evil. This is why he is now enthroned at the right hand of God, ruling over all. And he will return one, way, one day to judge. And Peter says, when we follow the example of Jesus' sacrificial service, we put all of that on display to the world. Look at this. Go just a couple verses before this. Chapter 3, verse 14. Look what he says. He says, again, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed have no fear of them nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Perhaps a better way to translate it is like this. In your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Make him Lord in your hearts. And always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Peter's point is that when we, God's people, willingly suffer for doing good, we can take heart because we're not simply following Jesus' example. We're following Jesus' example that leads to victory. We're living in a way that demonstrates that he is Lord, King, Master. And here's the part you have to understand. When he says, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts, that doesn't mean that he is only Lord in your heart. It doesn't mean that Jesus is only your personal Lord and Savior. What we declare through our lives by our willingness to follow in the example of Jesus is that he is Lord over all. He is king over everything. And when we walk in his footsteps, we make that known. We testify to his victory and how he won that victory. 
That's the defense that Peter tells us to be ready to give with our lives. Not just how we can talk about philosophy, how we can reason through how old the earth is or, or how, what happened to the dinosaurs. I mean, this verse is, is the, the calling card verse for apologetics, and, and it should be in many ways. This idea of giving a defense for the hope that's in us, but remember the context. Remember what Peter's doing here. Again, this is, these are fascinating ideas of what happened and how does science relate to the Bible and all that kind of stuff. Really fascinating things. But what's really the defense that Peter's telling us to give here? Give an answer for why we would willingly take the role of servants in this world. Why would we willingly spend so much time caring for those that society overlooks? Why would we be willing to endure mistreatment and ridicule without fighting back? Seriously, why would you live that way? And the defense that we give is because this is how Jesus lived. And this is how Jesus won. This is the victory of Jesus, his sacrificial love. He's Lord of all. He will bring God's judgment. He will make all things new and grant his people new and everlasting life when he returns. And he accomplished all of that through an act of sacrificial love and victory over death. That's why I want to walk like Jesus. And if this is true, this isn't just the way that I should walk. This is the way that you should walk too. If Jesus is Lord of all, he is your Lord as well. And you should come join in following Jesus. That's what it means to give a defense for the hope that's in us. If you're not a follower of Jesus, this is the call to you today. Come, follow Jesus. Find in his example of sacrificial suffering the path to true life and forgiveness and hope and victory in this world. If you are a follower of Jesus, my hope in these last three weeks has been to give us all, myself included, a clearer picture of what it actually means to walk like Jesus, to commit ourselves to honorable service, sacrificial service, to do good, to confront evil in this world and be willing to suffer without retaliating. This is the most powerful way to confront evil and suffering in our world because this is how Jesus won. But let me close with this. We sang a song earlier that talks about how the battle belongs to the Lord, right? As we walk the path of Jesus, as we seek to confront evil, remember, it is not our job to rid this world of evil. That is a weight that is too heavy for us. We cannot bear it. Jesus can, though. He can carry that weight. And the way that we live is meant to point to him. The way that we serve and sacrifice for those around us is meant to be like, like movie trailers, like these little glimpses of what the rule of Jesus looks like so people can see it and taste it and touch it and go, I want that. But the weight of the world is on Jesus' shoulders. He's strong enough for it. Our goal is to testify to that reality. And in that way, not just do we 
not only do we point to Jesus' victory, we actually get to share in it. We get to participate in it. Here's the last thing I'll show you as I invite the band back up. Sometimes in the midst of a heavy passage, heavy section like this, it's so helpful for us. You ever done that with a book? Maybe you're reading a book and it got really scary or intense, so you flip to the end just to see how it ends to reassure yourself, right? That's what I was doing this week. I found this in Revelation chapter 12. In Revelation 12, John sees this grand vision of history as this battle between Satan and his forces and Michael, the archangel, and his forces. And the forces of God defeat Satan. They cast him down to the earth. And then this is what John sees or hears in that scene. He says, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before the Lord. And they have overcome him. Who's they? Our brothers. Us. How do we overcome the evil one? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. For they loved not their lives even to death. This is how evil is overcome in our world. This is the path for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan to follow and it is our path as well. It is a hard path, but it leads to true life. It is the pact, the victory over Satan, sin and death. And by the blood of the lamb, our victory in this battle is guaranteed. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we magnify you as the one who won the victory over evil through an act of sacrificial love. We exalt you for breaking the power of evil and death in our lives. You were one who came and didn't only tell us to love our enemies. You loved us while we were enemies. Your love has conquered our evil. Would you empower us by your spirit to walk in your path and demonstrate your victory and the reality of your just judgment to those around us? And would you, like you've done with our family throughout history, would you draw people into your family through us as we follow your example? We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.